the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of AV Nation TV's Connected. I'm your host, David Danto, and we have a fabulous panel of guests that I want to have them introduce themselves. We're going to be talking about education and educational technology and all the things that have happened, you know, during the pandemic and what we've learned and what's going to change going forward. So so let me ask them to all introduce themselves one at a time. I'll do it in order as they're laying out over here. Um, uh, Cindy, why don't you introduce yourself first? Tell everybody who you are and what you do. Well, good afternoon. My name is Cindy Diani. I am the Director for Education at Poly. I've been in the educational technology field for well over 20 years. I'm glad to be here, David. Thank you for joining us, Cindy. And Esther, you're next. Why don't you tell everybody about yourself? Hi, I'm Esther Lohr. Uh, this is my 16th year in education. I am an elementary assistant principal in North Jersey. I was previously a classroom teacher for 15 years beforehand, and I'm happy to be a part of this panel. Thanks for inviting me. Esther, thanks to having somebody in New Jersey with me. So it's two of us now. That's great. Joe, my friend Joe, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do as if people don't know the uh, last year's uh, AV uh, person of the year. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me, uh, David. Yes, my name is Joe Way, and I'm the Director of Learning Environments here in beautiful Southern California at, at the University of Southern California, and I'm uh, also the co-founder of the Higher Education Technology Managers Alliance. Great group. Thank you very much for joining us, Joe. And last but certainly not least, Reggie Smith is joining us. Reggie, tell everybody what you do and what the USDLA is. Hi, my name is Reggie Smith. I'm the CEO and Executive Director for the United States Distance Learning Association. We are a nonprofit association with chapters in every state almost and partnerships around the world, really just helping to facilitate the application and development of distance learning. Terrific. Thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. So, so Esther, I'm going to pick on you and start with you. Um, because when this pandemic started, you were a teacher, you were a classroom teacher. And, and, you know, give me a sense of what the day in the life was for you when, when the, just before the pandemic started and how it changed when the pandemic started. Uh, well, we were just rolling along like it was a normal year, um, teaching in person. Obviously, our entire class, I had 25 students um, in a very small classroom all together. And I remember getting that call that Thursday and um, we're like, okay, we're going to send everyone home. The Friday is going to be a professional development day for teachers. We're shutting down schools. At that point, it was just for two weeks. News of the virus had um, kind of spread. And of course, being in New, New Jersey, where we're kind of the, the epicenter of, of the first outbreak, um, we quickly shifted gears and said, okay, we'll put together some virtual um, online choice board type of activities to kind of tide us over for the next two weeks. And we got together as grade level teams across the whole district, put together um, what we would have been working on, a little bit of review, and we really thought that we'd be back in two weeks. And you know, fortunately, my district at the time, we were already on Google Classroom, so we had a mode to push out assignments uh, to our students at home. I was teaching fifth grade at the time, so thankfully for myself, uh, that my students were already pretty independent, and they had 
because it was March already been familiar with the platform. If this had happened in September, I think it would have been a different story for the spring. So we switched gears. We went from in-person everyday teaching to these kind of choice board um, asynchronous learning. And then we got that news that oh, we're not we're not going back and now we need to start doing some live streaming, live teaching, um, all from the comfort of home, but a laptop in my dining room with small children in the background. So it became quite an adventure at that point. Yeah, and those those two weeks have, uh, well, we're still going, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're on just about a year now. Um, so, Joe, same question for you. You know, you obviously were familiar with educational technology, this more, you know, in a higher ed experience. What was your day day in the life for you before? And, and then what turned out as you heard about the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so, obviously, running the ed tech here at USC is just one meeting. I, I say that I'm paid just to attend meetings, right? I mean, we're, we're very operational, right? The faculty come in, they teach, we support them. And it's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Obviously, my design team, we're working on what's going to happen over the summer because this is, you know, Friday the 13th in March where the all of a sudden we're online. Um, but we were already gearing up for, you know, what summer project's going to be. What are we going to be doing going forward? Um, and I remember that those kind of first three days um, as the news came and really, you know, University of Washington and Stanford University were the first to announce that, you know, they're down for the semester. And we thought, okay, something's happening here. And this is where we, we were doing a trial. We were going to test whether or not we could actually do our courses online, give, do them in a virtual environment. We had just, as a university, uh, established our, uh, Zoom enterprise license right beforehand, um, literally a month beforehand. I think we were only had about 800 users on March 12th. Um, and then March 13th, we jumped up to around 45,000 users pretty much overnight. Um, and, you know, so the good part is, is that we had this as a, as a, a backup already. Um, but that was it. It was kind of just as Esther just said, we're, we're, we're a couple of weeks, right? We're going to get people there. We'll give them their sign. They're college students. You know, there was real no, there was not a sense of we have shut down. It was just, you're not going to class. You're still living here. You're still in your fraternity house, your sorority, your dorm. Um, so you just can't leave there. And that really, really quickly by that next Friday was, oh, no, we're not coming back. Everything is now shut down. You know, we'll see you, you know, in, in the fall. Yeah, yeah, we'll see you in the fall. Um, well, when that, where that went already. Um, but that was really how it, how it went. We were lucky that we already had the back end in place, but no one could really be prepared us. And what is that going to mean to turn 60,000 people, whether the staff, uh, the faculty, the students, and get them to a virtual environment pretty much overnight from that Friday to Monday. That was it. They, we were back and we were up, we were up, you know, and running. And you know, it was really great to see this as a business continuity really go into place and working to know that uh, you know were there struggles, absolutely struggles, but overall a success. And Joe, you were one of the few that were actually really jumped into the technology quickly. You know, it took a long time for a lot of other places, and you know, it didn't really work. Reggie, you, you speak to a lot of other educators dealing with these same technology issues during this. Are these similar to the stories that you've heard, or have you heard anything different about what this initial shock was and what the ramp was to getting you know distance learning working? Yeah, it was a it was a wide range, and also 
having lived in the 90s doing uh, pandemic exercises for the National Guard and really just trying to calm people down. I, you know, I'm watching the news just like everyone else and said, mm, this is probably going to be bad. And so as folks, as people called me from around the country, as I checked in with my board members and our chapters, and really just kind of got a sense of where everyone was, it, it's a wide range. Some institutions would do a blended learning, so they were able to just move students over somewhat seamlessly. And some had uh, institutions that, quite frankly, ignored some of the distance learning because they may have had a special program or a special med program that the online component that the campus could not touch and break. And, and so when COVID hit, they needed to talk to the distance ed side of the house and the institution. So uh, we rushed and put a ton of resources online through our website, informed and talked to our chapters. We have face-to-face -face conferences. We live in technology, but um, it was a shift for the uh, organization and moving all of our conferences and, and forward. But we had great sponsors and supporters from Google to Logitech. The list goes on. PBS reached out and providing links and information that we put on our website and made sure that it was available for any and everybody. And, and I think one of the things for us, we have a large website with a lot of stuff. And so we took a real quick look at the information and, and often I would get a call saying, Reggie, where'd you put this new material? I said, well, th this material has been here. The industry has been around. I've been in distance ed for about 30 years. And the association has been around for 35 years coming up in uh, 2022. So yeah. congratulations yeah. on that anniversary. But yeah, it's, 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 it's <laughs> different than it was then because, and I don't want to go into this tangent now, but I'll come back to it, is that the uh, distance learning used to be a lot harder to do. It used to involve expensive studios and codecs and cameras. And, you know, we can now do it successfully with drop-in gear that's very inexpensive. So, so the access is a lot greater um, than it was. And, and we, we should talk about that, you know, as we get further into this. But I guess it's probably more of a situation of how prepared educational organizations were to realize they need to adapt. You know, one of the big issues that I saw come up in all of this was that, you know, a lot of school systems hobbled through the end of the semester in 2021, got to the summer, relaxed, said, oh, great, we'll be back from this in September, didn't take the summer to prepare. Um, and then fall came around and nothing had been done. Um, and that, that, that was sort of frightening to me when, when we saw a lot of people, you know, thinking, for whatever reason, that this was going to be over a lot quicker than 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 it actually was going to be. Well, you bring up a good point. I think they are also still stumbling through it. So 2021 is going to be a challenge because I still see some bad practices being applied and not really integrated into the Google Classroom or the Zoom classrooms. And when when you're testing the kids, not to have them all on one platform here in the technical jargon back and forth as the kids are trying to listen and take a test as opposed to using another application where you can put the kids in separate rooms and then, you know, uh, assist them technically that way. So I think we still have some ground to cover, especially as teachers go back and have blended, you know, teaching at a distance and in the classroom thrown upon teachers that have may not have practiced that. There's, there's going to be some pain. Yep. 
Exactly. So, Cindy, is this do these stories drive with what you're hearing from your people in the industry? Yeah, they do resonate. One thing I'm thinking at thinking about when I'm listening to everybody here is the way it was different for me. So, as a person that delivers technology to um, education, um, typically, you know, we're working through programmatic changes or improvements in an organization. But what happened with COVID is everything shifted. So it became the teachers had to adapt to new pedagogies and new ways of teaching. Um, we had to make it simple for them. It had to be mobile so they could do it at home or in the classroom. Um, we had to take a look at the socioeconomic differences of school districts. Um, by way of an example, LA County, you know, that was a, a large program that, that we addressed. And the only reason I bring them up is they have such a diverse background of socioeconomics, some people that, you know, are homeless as well as some people in, you know, very high-end homes. So we had to figure out ways that they would all have equity in their education. So I think that's kind of what expanded our view and how, how we're addressing this for, yeah, for our education partners. That's actually really a great point, and I've talked about this at a number of presentations before, so the viewers of this webcast are not hearing this for the first time, but we have to remember, while, while during this pandemic, technology, computers, smart devices, and home broadband were more available than they've ever been in the history, and that really saved the you know knowledge workers and, and, and a lot of it, it is still an issue of privilege. Not everybody has access to these devices. Not everybody has broadband connectivity at home, and and it needs to be treated going forward. Hopefully, we've learned our lesson and will be treated like a utility, um, because it isn't that way yet. There's a lot of uh, of inequity that we need to go through. So so that's that's actually a very good point. We never really want to lose sight of that when we're talking about all this technology. Um, Joe, you had a comment before that you were talking about um, as it related to the 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 fear and the stagnation. Of, uh, of organizations when this thing came up? Like at what point do you jump in and realize that, that you have to make some sort of move? Is, is that something that you saw and you experienced or you heard from some of your other members? Absolutely, you know, in talking to a lot of higher ed institutions, the, and again, it has a lot to do with when this happened. This happens mid-March when you're already thinking, you know, what are we gonna do over the summer? What, you know, what's already planned? And you heard everyone saying, well, we're back in the fall. We're not going to do anything. We only have to make it through the last six or eight weeks of class and we can kind of suffer through this. And that's when you got a lot of find the cheapest webcam you can and get it here. Let's just make this work. Let's use it's OK if they just use laptops, but then you know, whatever they have, their mic and camera that's built into their laptop. There was no sense of investing. Um, there was no sense in this is as you just mentioned uh, the uh, inequity issues that came up. We didn't realize how many students relied upon the services we provide on campus, right? How many relied upon our Wi-Fi? They don't, may not have it in their apartment. How many people rely? Students relied on three different jobs at, that were typically probably service industry jobs at the at that age demographic that are now all shut down. And now they couldn't afford the services to be able to ha go through class appropriately. And the initial instinct for many schools was, we just got to make it through these next few weeks, and then we're going to be okay, uh, with no real thought of how are we going to invest. But then when fall came and you're not back yet, it was, okay, we're going to have to do something because two things happened. One, now we know we have to make investment because others are making the investment and now you have to keep up with what other people are doing but two 
We had a paradigm shift in higher education and all of education. We all of a sudden got that, you know, as Reggie had just mentioned, you know, all these tools, these have been here for years. It was user acceptance that was lacking. User acceptance came over that next four or five months, especially then when August, September came when we recognized we weren't coming back. Now you had to make an investment. And we're seeing that, and I made this prediction last year, and I think it's actually gonna be true this year, we're gonna see more investment in higher education this summer than we did last summer. Because last summer was do whatever you can do to survive. Now we're looking at how are we gonna thrive into the future? And those are two very different things when it comes to spending in higher ed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you bring up, you know, Reggie and, and, and I, uh, I've been involved in distance learning for, for decades. Um, and, and Reggie, I don't know if you were as pained as I was in hearing about how so many teachers, you know, K through eight, higher ed, everybody were talking about how distance learning is a failure, how it just doesn't work, how, it, how we've got to get back into the brick and mortar classroom. And it just pains me that people who don't understand the technology and didn't prepare for the medium are bad mouthing it because they want to go back so badly. Yes, we all want to go back to a normal model where, where life is normal and everything is normal, but it's not because distance learning doesn't work. It's because people weren't prepared to use it. Is, is those are the stories you're hearing, Reggie? Yeah, that that was uh, exactly the story. They they weren't prepared, and, and to some degree, uh, you know, bad mouthing the field. And, and so, as we watched teachers, we did a lot of outreach. Really, put a lot of webinars online. We also focused on niche uh, markets. For example, historically black colleges and universities. We actually held the first virtual forum for those institutions as they were struggling as well with students and money and it involved the White House. And so, um, and, and quite frankly, I've actually told my board, we're gonna prepare for a lot of policy things that are gonna come out probably in 21 and 22 regarding, you know, the perception, you know, um, and, and we know every, you know, this shoe doesn't fit every kid, but the the the, the some of the bad marketing that I'm seeing or, news that I see on the Today Show and other shows, you know, I've told my board, you know, on a policy side, we're really going to have to uh, step our game up along with our partners and really show them that it's how you apply the technology and, and the appropriate audience and knowing your students and not always spending money. You can always use open education resources. Merlot has a fabulous program. So there's stuff out there and there are better ways to use Google Classroom as opposed to, you know, kind of sticking all the kids in one thing. So there is a better way. We just, you know, really are pushing to show how to do that. Yeah, Reggie, in a couple of the presentations I made over the summer, I was equating this to the historical time when um, television first came out um, and radio had been the predominant medium that people were using. So the first television shows were people standing on camera in front of a microphone holding and reading radio scripts. And it was terrible and it didn't work because a new medium requires a new message. Distance learning requires educational content geared for distance learning. Um, it doesn't work. And, and Esther, you have a great story. I'll go to you and let you know. It's like, you know, you were told to go home and sit down and you found yourself right in front of your webcam on your computer. Tell everybody that story that you told me about what it was like and, and how you frustrated you were. Uh, so I just want to piggyback a little bit of, of what you were talking about, where sure. this distance learning is getting a bad name. I think it is important to delineate um, primary grade levels versus middle school, high school, because the way we teach at the K-5 level is so much more hands-on. 
um, manipulatives, you have objects in front of you, you're doing small group, you're doing one-on-one -on -one conferences, and that, I, that instruction, the way instruction is done at the K-5 level is wildly different than middle school, high school. It's not lecture-based, it's not um, whole group. A lot, you know, there has been this push over the years for differentiated instruction, and it, that mode of teaching and instruction has been difficult to translate into the distance, um, especially kindergarten, first, second grade, where you are used to working so closely, physically closely with students and the amount of help that they need and support, um, not just with their actual learning, but physically in the, in the, in the classroom with their backpacks and their things and their materials and how, how much effort goes into just classroom management of things that they have in front of their folders, their, um, their journals and, how much and stand overhand. And so now all of that is on parents. It's still on parents to manage that piece of it. So when we, uh, transferred over to or switched over to this pandemic teaching like that I like to call and, and honestly a little bit traumatic when I still think back to the spring and teaching from my bedroom, you were really just stuck right in front of your laptop. And thankfully the district I was in gave had we already had laptops for every teacher. So at least that was, uh, we had that going for us. Everyone got to take home a district laptop and then um, and I am, was working in a more affluent district. So students also could get a Chromebook from school if they needed, uh, but a lot of them had their own personal devices, multiple devices, either a laptop and an iPad or so on and so forth. And that idea of going from teaching in front of a board, a smart board, getting to circulate um, in the classroom between bouncing from student to student, uh, pulling small groups at the back table, and now I'm stuck in a chair in front of a camera. Um, I got nowhere to go. <laughs> My children banging on the bedroom door because they know I'm home and they're wondering <laughs> what, what I'm doing in there. Uh, and then I'm meeting with students on Google Meet in small groups. Um, I actually ended up, this is funny, all summer I ended up going to the chiropractor and the acupuncturist because I never had, you know, back and neck issues before because my job by nature was very mobile. And uh, when you have to teach in front of a camera, you just become very stagnant and stationary. And that's one of the downsides of, of you know, teaching with whatever equipment you can grab, whatever Chromebook you can get, whatever camera, whatever you can, that was one of the issues, is that it, it was not comfortable for anybody. Reggie, you had a comment about that? No, I was just gonna add, that, and maybe I'll do a course correction. We have heard some uh, uh, bad uh, press regarding the industry. I think it's largely around the mental health issue, which we've actually talked about really kind of engaging that in a more meaningful way. Um, but looking at the application, I, I actually have a third grader. So uh, in, in the middle of this thing taking off, um, really I shifted gears to really help the teachers look at the different technologies. You know, you can have Google Classroom down to your phone. You can go outside, use the mobile devices. And that was a real good question that uh, early on, someone on the webinar asked me, you know, what, what do you think? That, that, that folks can you do do better and use more, and I said the mobile devices. And so you can take those mobile devices outside. You know, I actually built a garden for my daughter and we started planting seeds and grew, grew some cucumbers. And so we just did things differently. And I think um, as parents, we had to engage at another level as opposed to, you know, dropping the, 
the child off for eight hours a day at a particular school and, and do a little bit of homework. Now you actually get to see what your teacher sees in your child if they pay attention or if they're listening or they're not writing, if they're chewing their pencil, you get to see some of the things that you can have a, a, an opportunity to do a course correction. And in my family, we did a little course correction and we're going to keep moving. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Cindy, uh, you go ahead. If, if uh, how how have you yeah. experienced this, and what have you heard people saying regarding you know six, eight, ten months into this, how they've corrected and what they've learned about? Yeah, I'm going to comment real quickly on what Reggie said too when he talked about you know emotional health. I think you know another thing that that is really critical as we look for ways to facilitate better distance learning in this environment is it's not just educational but it's also people with physical you know students with physical challenges and those you know that are experiencing you know poverty or younger kids that really need access to interactive and engaging education i think across the board we need to be looking at that um in how we're deploying this and how it can affect change in multiple age groups and environments so in terms of um, what was your question, Dave? Can you ask me one more time? Oh, no, just the, we were talking about course corrections, you know, six months, eight months in, you know, what are you hearing from, from your clients? What are you hearing from people in the industry about what they've learned and what they've changed and how they're finally adapting to this? Yeah, I think it's, I think this um, technology model is becoming more of the norm. And I think a hybrid classroom is here to stay. I mean, I don't think we'll ever put the lid back on the jar. Um, I don't think it will ever go back to the way it was. Um, I think if we look at, at higher education and, and some of the things that are going to be required as we come out of the um, COVID environment, we're going to have to, you know, there's going to be a strong pivot to strengthen, you know, re-strengthen the economy. I think that's really going to be a, a requirement. I think we're going to have to create a skilled workforce that's going to look very different than the workforce previously. Um, and I think a lot of those people are going to be non-traditional learners. So I think this model that we have of distance education um, is here to stay. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. I think there is a huge paradigm shift that's going on. Um, and we want to, we think of like what we've done here at USC and we're seeing a trend in our industry was, you know, this convergence between UC and AV. Right, that you know, this was already happening from a technology point of view. We've already seen that the takeoff of all of the UC collaboration platforms, uh, but we were pre-pandemic so stuck in BYOD, you know, and wireless sharing that we were actually, as an industry, not focused on really where things were moving. We were already, and in, in the IT world, already move, things are already moving to the cloud. And we're already moving to a, a hybrid world, already moving to software-based uh, technologies. And this is, the pandemic has done a great thing. The industry and uh, education in general is that now it's taken our reliance off of the stuff in a space, and it's moved us into um, you know a cloud the virtual world all of the, the sense that we it, your tool yourself is your learning mechanism it is um, how you're going to be able to connect the true anywhere to anywhere has become a yeah. um, yeah, we already knew things were moving that direction. where you are 
right? Class is where you are. Yeah. The teacher is where yeah. you are giving the instruction. It isn't brick and mortar anymore. It's much more diverse than that. Yep, 100%. And, and Esther, you're also now engaged in, or have you experimented with hybrid teaching? Um, uh, you know, and, and what what you have to do in front of the classroom for people in the class and people that are connected on the cloud. Um, how's that experience been for you when you tried it? So, you know, I'm just going back to what you were saying, where we thought, okay, we'll be back in the fall and all summer long. We we're planning to reopen. We'll be back in the classrooms, and we're getting the PPE, the masks, ventilation. Those were all part of the conversation to to bring teachers and students back safely. Ultimately, we started the school year all remote because we weren't quite there. We, um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting being at the elementary level and in older buildings in North Jersey, our classrooms were not equipped with air conditioning. So now we're added that layer of now we're bringing students back in masks in classrooms on the second floor of these pre-war buildings where it's like 80, 90 degrees. What do we do? So we started the year in that remote. Everyone is in one um, online got the air conditioners in rather quickly, faster than, uh, faster than what we had been asking for for years. And then we started the hybrid. And so we had basically two first days of school, well, three first days of school. We started the first day of school, full remote, all 25 kids on the screen. Then we transitioned with the first cohort and it was the first day of school for them. Coming in school, we had kids at home, kids online. So I had about eight students online and um, 16 to 17 students, uh, sorry, eight students in person, 16 to 17 students online. And now you're juggling a screen on Zoom and kids who are sitting in front of you. And then the next day was a third first day of school for the second cohort to come in. How do we act? How do we walk? Temperature taking. Um, what happens if tech goes down? If I need to address someone in class, what are the kids at home doing online? Like you had to start thinking about your management from a completely different perspective, having two platforms and really splitting your time between online and um, in person. And that is still the mode that we're in. The district I came from as a teacher is still in the hybrid mode. Now in my new district where I'm an administrator, we're still in the hybrid mode. Uh, my, where I live in North Jersey, they never opened. They were full remote. They were supposed to open back in November. I believe they tried to go back maybe a week ago to start hybrid learning now. And then there are the larger city schools that are still full remote. They've never made it back into the classroom since last March. So that also speaks to that equity piece that we were um, talking about earlier. And, and the other thing that's interesting is, and I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I actually do want to mention it because it's important. While we are challenged with the problems with distance learning and remote education, we are also going through some enormous culture changes. Um, around the world and specifically here in the U.S. where we are, where all of a sudden, and again, this is not the topic of this uh, webcast, but, you know, corporate uh, uh, corporations, corporate real estates are shedding leases. We're now understanding the fact that more people will be working remotely. It'll be a strategy instead of something that's tolerated going forward, which means people's decision as to where to live and where to, what communities to be in will no longer be based primarily on their commute distance to work it's now going to be based on other factors. 
you know, cost of living? Where's the school? You know, where's the community where my family lives? You know, is it as quiet or as bustling as I like? So we're going to see more and more of these changes affecting where children are, where children are learning, and how children learn. I mean, we had, you know, uh, we're in New Jersey now, again, the two of us, so you know as well as I do, they're predicting 10 inches of snow tomorrow as we're recording this thing. We had a record snowfall. We had over 30 inches of snow a couple of weeks ago. It's still out on the street. There are no more snow days. Kids don't wake up and look out the window and see that, oh, it's snowing. I don't go to school. You go to school anyway because your school is able to adapt to be online. Your work is able to adapt to be online. These are culture changes we're going to have to live through going forward for a long time forward. So so anyway, Reggie, totally let, let me get... Let me get back to where we were uh, talking about before. Let, let's talk about what the lessons learned are. Obviously, at some point, you know, with, you know, with the grace of God, we will have uh, um, uh, the escape from this pandemic. Um, there'll be vaccinations. We'll get it under control, whether that's, you know, this year or late in the year or early next year, whenever it is, it is. What have we learned? What are the lessons learned? What's going to stick around going forward? I, you know, one of the things I think as an association we learned is really we have an entirely new audience and so as 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 techies or teachers we tend to clump together and, and fortunately for the association we have a mix of k-12 higher ed corporate telemedicine homeschoolers and so we get a mix of that but we got a a, a real surge of a new audience and really taking them from uh zero all the way up and really kind of helping them scale a little faster and I think also another uh, one other lesson, this is a simple lesson that I tell my board all the time, we have to show the fun side of this. Uh, you know, a pandemic is, is it's a terrible thing, but there's some some humor and creativity and also really make sure everyone knows that distance learning is the mobile phone, it's Google, it's the internet, it's your laptop, it's your camera, it is any and everything you can throw into the mix. And so it's not just one platform. So, you know, really have some fun with it and help people make mistakes. Uh, you know, the te let people fail. I'm a believer of letting people fail so they can become comfortable. And I think the teachers that really excel in that space are comfortable with the kids, texting each other, calling each other other's names, and they pick up on it, they bring it to class, they drag the parents in, and you know, they know how to navigate that space. I think it's a much richer environment. So, but I also think it's gonna really fuel the knowledge environment and the knowledge uh, economy because there's people are gonna work differently. They're gonna have to access more information from an association. We have 35 years of information you know, I boiled it down to a web page with some sponsors to really focus some content, but there's a ton of stuff out there for people to use. Sure. Um, and, and Cindy, going over to you from a lessons learned standpoint, you know, I, I think one of the things we've come up with is that there is, is there's technology that's affordable. There's funding sources that are available out there. What, what have you uh, heard from the people you work with about the lessons learned? Yeah, I, I will say, some of the big things that I think of when I think about lessons learned are educators, um, administrators are making really wise decisions in the technology they're choosing so that it's ubiquitous and so that they, they're making every effort to make sure what they're investing in is something that'll work for the future. So as they look forward to the next normal, is this something that's going to have value? 
is is it going to work beyond how we need it right now in the hybrid classroom but in you know once the covid crisis passes you know how else can this be used and i think you know what they've learned is there's there's you know great um ways in in order to to utilize the technology in ways like professional development for teachers um dual enrollment for you know multiple programs um you know, expanded curriculum offerings that, you know, kind of um, allow for resource sharing um, in the classroom. And so that's another way. One of the biggest things I don't think any of us have talked about today is school-based health and how much um, this type of environment can assist in school-based health. Not every school um, has a nurse on staff. So say you extend your nursing, you know, resources. And so that's just another way. And so there's just many ways. And what I've noticed and what I would say lessons learned are, are we investing wisely? Isn't it something that we can expand the use case beyond kind of this COVID moment? Sure. And and Joe, I'll go to you about lessons learned, but I suspect, and, and, and I don't want to be unfair, but it's probably reasonable to say that, that um, your advantage quickly becomes your disadvantage in that you built really fabulous distance learning classrooms at a time when it wasn't really the common thing to do. And now there are a lot less expensive new choices on the market, easier things to do. And you've got this inbuilt infrastructure, which is terrific, but it's going to age faster than some of the choices that are on today. What, what do you deal with in terms of that, in terms of your technology choices, in terms of lessons learned, how are you approaching it? Yeah, you know, that was a huge, huge point there. Um, because now that this paradigm shift has happened, we now know that um, what we're going to end up doing in the future is not, um, is going to continue to change, right? This is actually the advantage of moving to a UC-based uh, systems, right? And not being stuck in the hardware, because we can also change on a dime. It, whatever the popular platform of the day, guess what? I can just delete the one app and I can load the other. App. And as long as I got an API, I can make our classrooms work with it, right? So there's a lot of things that, that are the advantages, but what we've really noticed as lessons learned is where you can use online instruction more valuably. For example, why would we want to invest in large auditoriums anymore? Who wants to be the one you know, student in out of 500 in a large space. You don't need that anymore. You now can, we can now think of this as in, those are better taught by having an asynchronous lecture and then a assistant or, you know, a teaching assistant, you know, work on small group work and to have small discussion groups. That's the best way to deliver those larger classes. Now we can invest in smaller spaces, interactive spaces. I almost thought like Esther was saying about, you know, K-5, you're, you're very hands-on. Well, actually, that's where we want to move to. Like, that's where we want to use our in-person, anything you have to be, the arts, all of our music, film, film school, music school. Um, those are the ones where you want to think, how can we research, need the people there. Everywhere else, why can't we keep it online? Why can't we look in the future and say, come to us. We love the brick and mortar. You want to attend football games on Saturday. That's why you're coming here, you know, that you want that feel. But maybe you actually only need to show up in person to class for two of your four classes. Maybe now you, that gives you flexibility to go online. We can hold classes outside of the hours. 
right? We're all thinking eight to two. Well, maybe so that we can now extend the weekend classes that were never popular, the evening classes for students that maybe need to hold multiple jobs, right? There's a lot of advantages where we're looking at technology assisting and changing the way our normal work is uh, and just the way higher ed is going to be in the future, um, which really then turns into how we're designing our spaces will forever change. The architects look at space design will now change. Um, flexible classrooms, those types of things that were popular and dying are now going to need back because of maybe you can now sit there and go, what ways do we use our spaces um, to make them interactive when you are seeing each other in person? So it's it's really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what this looks like, you know, a couple of years from now and after this all kind of pans out. And hopefully we do keep some of these positives as we move forward. Yeah, no, yeah and I think if we look at positives um, in, in what you're saying, or we look at po positives in this whole COVID environment that we're in, I would say one thing is that the forced learning methodologies that teachers have had to do where they become more comfortable and they're more adapted to, to this, type of technology now. So where before they maybe wouldn't have pushed quite so hard or they wouldn't have stepped out of their comfort zone and how they're teaching, this has really helped them adapt to it because they've had to. And I think that going forward based on what you're saying, that's gonna is what's gonna make it so easy for you and your environment because your your teachers will have adapted. Definitely. Um... Go ahead, Esther. I was just going to say, like, and the creativity of teachers and educators and their, their ability to shift gears many times, not just from last spring, but whenever our cases get too high here in New Jersey, a school or a classroom has to quarantine, and now you go from hybrid back to remote teaching again, and in, in a day, you have to shift gears yet again and um, be able to work in different modalities in an instant. So. So let me ask everybody one last question before we uh, we start to wrap this up. Uh, um, you know, as I said before, the pandemic will end. Um, I'm confident everything I own is crossed, and we're hoping that the pandemic's going to end. Um, how how much of you believes that we've learned these lessons that are going to really change the educational environment, the way teachers teach, the way students learn, versus people are just going to fall back into old habits because, you know, the ant and the grasshopper, they're not going to worry about it because it's not snowing outside anymore. Reggie, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen when it comes to uh, um, what we've learned when we're no longer facing the crisis? I, I think the biggest lesson learned, at least for me and, 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 and everyone I've talked to, is that you have... Uh, uh, parents have a better insight into how what their child is being educated and how they are being educated. And so I think there's going to be a real appreciation for teachers in the profession, because quite frankly, I think, you know, a lot of our teachers, I think it's the, the one of the best professions out there, but they often get beat up by, uh, you know, parents and, and, and a variety of things. I think there is going to be a massive appreciation for educators that now parents have had to really endure a year, two years of educating their child and balancing work. And, you know, so I think that is going to be one of the biggest um, plus that will come out of this uh, pandemic. Let's hope so. I mean, the value of teachers is something I would always like to see increased. Esther, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm 
I agree with you 100% that there needs to be more. Um, I think that I think parents now, especially the ones in this community, they are pushing for students to come back five days a week. Just the value of school and how much they've missed out on their on their children being home versus physically in a building. I know in, in upper grade levels and higher ed, we're talking about that you don't need that brick and mortar. Well, the conversation at the elementary or primary level is they're realizing how much they need that brick and mortar, a place to go for their children. And, um, and they do see the teachers working hard and the education that their children are getting. And that for the primary grade levels, that the distance, um, learning through zoom is not the not developmentally appropriate for certain ages and that having students in school physically uh, there's just no substitute for that we could have all the best technology in the world be trained uh, to the nines but i think that we've kind of taken for granted the human connection that we need um, and that schools provide the social emotional support that students were getting from school, from being with their peers physically. In terms of lessons learned, I think that education has quickly realized that the technology that's available in school, we really need to be at the forefront uh, much more. Like this is not just the one and done, we're gonna be back in the fall and we'll go back to teaching the way we were, the cameras and the document document cameras, the microphones, headsets, um, even just moving away from smart boards and having more interactive, dynamic interactive displays in front of your classroom, all plays into the quality of the education. So sure. I, I think this is an ongoing conversation. I, I think that there is some thought that things are gonna go back to quote unquote normal, but the cat's out of the bag. It's gonna have to continue. We're gonna have to keep talking about how we can support teachers with the technology that already exists out there in private sector. Like it was a shock to education, public ed, but a lot of these tools have already been in the industry for years, for decades, and we're just you know, stumbling upon it now. Yeah, and like a number of people pointed out before, you know, there are there are students, you know, disabled students, differently abled students that are not able to get into the classroom every day, and and more embracing of this technology is just going to be wondrous for them, for the education, for the workforce, for everything. So, Cindy, your last words. What do you think are the lessons learned? Well, I mean, I I don't have a lot to add to what everybody's just said, except I, you know, I always think as a grandmother, I'm going to step out of my box a little bit and say, you know, my grandkids have kind of thrived in this environment because the first time in their lives, their parents have all been home because they're all working at home, they're working with them. Now, my grandkids are lucky in that their parents are incredible and they they take the time to work with them and teach them and everything else. But um, I definitely agree with Esther that I think that social component is what's really missing. But what the point I wanna make here is I think getting back in the classroom um, at some level, especially with the, the lower grades, drives equity um, in the classroom because not all parents are alike. So, you know, a lot of this at-home learning that's been going on, while for some has been really kind of a gift, for others, you know, there's not equity. There's not the attention from the parents that, you know, some people are having, some children are having. 
So I think, you know, getting back, you know, to Esther's point, not only is good socially, but also kind of creating and narrowing the, the disparity okay. for the and student. Joe, I'll give you the last word in terms of lessons learned and uh, what, when you how you think it's going to be uh, like when we come back out of this pandemic. Yeah, um, and you, you'd said before, will we go back to normal? Uh, and kind of how things were, will the faculty and students want to just go back and, and get that traditional? I will give that a solid maybe, um, because I don't think anyone actually wants to go back to normal. I actually believe that more positive has come out of this, except for the social interaction, and which is exactly what we're hearing from the students. The students are giving actually great reviews and about their classes, and they're adapting. They're a digital natives that we have now. Again, this is the, the the students who are in class grew up with technology. You know, the ones who are at the, you know, college age right now were, was how we parented when they were five years old and by throwing a, through the backseat of the car and giving them an iPad, right? That's how we started parenting. And they grew up with that. And so they're comfortable with that. Um, now, the faculty is a different story, but I think because this has gone on long enough, they're recognizing the advantages, the advantage of doing your syllabus on Blackboard. How crazy is that? And I think that, and so I think a lot of these things are gonna be positive as we continue to move forward. Um, and that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see a truly hybrid environment where you won't print anymore, right? I'm getting ready to cancel all of our print you know, contracts uh, for our computer labs. Everything will be turned in online. Syllabus will be online. Discussions will be online. What will you do in person? Social events, concerts, football games, basic class, group work. It'll change the dynamic. Um, and I'm actually really excited about that. That's the kind of college I want to go to. I'm interacting and hanging out. Um, and developing those skills, those life skills, the work skills, the you know those things that make you successful moving forward, and letting the education side be done how you're comfortable and in the modality you're comfortable in. I think it's an exciting time for education. Exciting is a word for it. Oh, guys, get said, Rudy. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying I agree. Ah, okay. So, so uh, exciting is, you know, if you think about exciting, you can think about the idea of a roller coaster. You know, some people love it and some people are scared to death. So we're definitely on a roller coaster right now going forward. So Joe, if, if somebody wants to find out more about you or get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter and all the socials actually at Josiah Way. So at Josiah Way everywhere or JosiahWay.com. Thank you very much, Joe. Reggie, how could somebody reach out, find out more about you, find out more about the USDLA? I live across all the social spaces, but you can visit usdla.org and find out what we're doing. We also do webinars every Friday to really get the information out there to help, uh, you know, any and every audience out there. The wonderful resources that you provide. Thank you for that very much. Uh, thank you very much for that, Reggie. Esther, how could somebody reach out to you or find out more about what you do if they want to? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at slores. L-O-O-R, uh, to see what the schools are up to. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, you can email me at esther.lor at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Esther. And Cindy, I'll give you the last word. How does somebody reach out and find out more about what you do and reach out to you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, or you can reach me at poly at, poly at cindy.deani at poly.com. 
Cindy. Thanks very much to all my guests. Thank you very much. Thank this you. Is a terrific uh, uh, conversation. Uh, we, we we took almost a full hour here, which is amazing. It's very interesting. Um, and we did have a couple of glitches in terms of internet connectivity, but you know that's the world we live in right now. So I'm I'm not making a big deal out of it. I think the content was really terrific. Um, I'm your host, David Danto. I do these all the time. Just Google me, and I show up across the internet in more places than I want. Unless it's talking about the indigenous peoples in Canada, and then that's a distant cousin, David Danto, who is actually out there with a great paper right now. So just so you know the difference, I have met him once or twice. Um, so for AV Nation TV for the IMCCA, I'm David Danto. Thanks so very much for joining us and we'll see you on the next show.